Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. I I actually recently had forgotten about a story that happened to me in my youth, and I, and I remembered it. And I think my kids like that for several reasons. One, I think they're tired of hearing the same old stories again and again. But two, I think they like hearing about how dumb I was. It kind of levels the parent-kid playing field. It makes it feel like it's not quite so far apart. You know, I was talking with a friend about how we used to like going up in, in hot summer days up to Table Rock and crawl through the slag piles from the old quarry that's up there. You know, they used to, most of the table rock was actually made up there from the sandstone that they mined for downtown Boise. And any of the rocks they didn't use, they just kind of cast aside and put on this pile. Huge pile of rocks still up there today. And on a, on a hot summer's day, you could go down and crawl between all these rocks, and it would get down to like 65, 60 degrees down there, which is fantastic. You know, as an adult, I, I have some questions about my wisdom in doing that, <laughs> the stability of tons of rocks on top of each other, and then crawling between them to see where you could get. Could you get to a different piece of the, of the pile and pop out somewhere different? Could you survive? You know, we, we went down there one time, several of us, and we were crawling around, uh, me and two other friends, and... and we kind of pop down into this little pocket, as it were, almost kind of from the ceiling. And, you know, we're down there, and all three of us are actually fitting in this spot. And we're, we're just down there having a good time joking. And they're like, okay, we need to get out. And, you know, you would think you'd, you'd think through this a little bit. You'd be like, hey, let's continue to send the smallest guy first, and then the medium guy first, and then the big guy for last. And I don't know if we had some sort of plan where, like, maybe the big guy needs to pull us all up, help us get back out of this little pocket that we're in. But we send him first. And he gets himself completely wedged and stuck. I'm not kidding. We are in there for, for probably a good 10 minutes, pushing, pulling. We rip his pants. We rip his shirt. He is still completely wedged into this spot down in the middle of this slag pile of rocks. And we start joking. I mean, the joke is like at some point he's got to get skinnier and then he'll keep moving. But I think for the two of us who are on the other side in the hole, there's a little bit of worry starting to set in. I mean, here we are in the middle of this slag pile. We've got headlamps on that are undoubtedly going to run out. We didn't bring food or water with us. This is pre-cell phone days. No one knows where we're at. We're probably only 15 feet from the surface, but there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of tons of rock on top of us that if someone were to start to move them are probably not going to react too favorably. You know, now as we're down there, we'd forgotten though that God had a provision to help us. Bats. See, when you don't like bats, you can be motivated to do some things you normally wouldn't do. Now, we'd run into bats down in these little, these little areas, and I don't remember exactly in this scenario if there was a bat actually involved, if there was just sound of bats, or if there was just the fear of bats. But after sitting there and trying for a minute, we remembered that bats were going to be present no matter what very quickly. And you'd be surprised the way someone's body can move when that happens. And we ended up getting him out of that hole, pushed through, and I don't actually think we ever went back and crawled through that slag pile again. Uh, by God's grace, we had gotten out and decided that was not the wisest decision. You know, what what Paul has been showing us here in Romans 1 through 3 is that our predicament is worse than anything that was going on that day on Table Rock. You know, he started out in chapter 1 being excited to talk to the Romans, telling them how joyous it was that he wanted to share with them the goodness of the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it is the power to save for all people. We saw that in Romans 1, 16 through 17. 
And we saw that he started out as well talking about the righteousness of God. This idea that we keep coming back to again and again throughout this book, that the righteousness of God is the righteous act by which a righteous God brings people into right relationship with himself by making them righteous in Jesus Christ. Righteousness is God's character. Righteousness is an act that God does. Righteousness is something that he gives to his people. And we are going to see much more about that this morning in Romans 3. Yet Paul in Romans 1 immediately shifted to the bad news. To the bad news that, that, that we all must see and know and understand for goodness to be good news. It has to write something. It has to, to bring, bring rectifying status to something bad. And it's bad news indeed. You know, in chapter 1, Paul focused primarily on how all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, all fail and are, are, are condemned under general revelation. This idea that, that creation, our own consciences, all speak to us how we don't rightly walk as image bearers of God, how we fail to live up to his holy and good standards. And we see that in how nature encourages us to use our body rightly with one another, as Romans 1, 18 through 27 talks about, but also how we even through our own internal desires and likes treat each other uncaring, unloving. Romans 1, 28 through 31. And even worse, Paul tells us in Romans 1, in Romans 1, 31, that we tend to approve of such things. Seemingly coming out of our desire to justify ourselves, we say that, that it's good that others do these things because then we can feel good about ourselves. You know, in chapter 2, Paul realizes that there may be some of those who, who might take exception to this comment. In fact, think that they might be the exception. Primarily, he's thinking about the Jews, but some of the same arguments sometimes are even used by Christians. You know, Paul reminds us that having the special revelation of God, knowing about him, knowing his desires for good and bad through scripture, through revelation from his prophets, does not in and of itself help us. And to simply know God's character, to know how good he is, what he has done, how loving he is, does not save us. You know, Paul argues that, that the Jews wanted to boast in their status as God's covenantal people. And that they didn't have the same problem that the Gentiles might have. They saw themselves as so distinct. And Paul breaks their argument down into two different trains of thought. First, it seems that they wanted to argue that they were good because they had God's law. They knew what was right and wrong. And Paul's response to them was this. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, the problem is that even with special revelation, we don't do what we should and we do what we shouldn't do. You know, the second argument is that they, the Jews, are, are part of the right people, that they're part of the right group, that their circumcision shows that they are part of the unique people of God, those that he has covenanted with. And to this, Paul says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Neither knowing the law in and of itself, nor just being a part of the right group of people will save you. And salvation is a relational problem between us and God. And it's something that we need to have fixed, not just by receiving God's word and just by being a part of the right group. You know, Paul's pushing the Romans and he's pushing me and you and he's continuing to push in chapter three that salvation only comes one way. You know, chapter three really has four main sections. You know, Paul continues off in chapter three where, where he was still at in chapter two when we talked last week. He's playing whack-a-mole. 
He's dealing with all the different exceptions that people think might mean that they don't have to live the same way, that there's a different answer to the question for them. And he continues to go through these first two sections and, and wrapping up and dealing again with what he started back in Romans 1.18, which is that we all are guilty of sin and that we all have the same need of salvation through the same method. And really, Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the heart of his entire letter. In fact, many scholars would argue that this might be one of the most important sections of our entire Bible. You know, Paul lays out here the reality that we are justified, that we are made righteous through Jesus Christ by faith. That Jesus, that it is in Jesus that our righteous God acts righteous to his people and declares them righteous. And it's after laying that out for us, showing us where and who it's found in, this, this ability to be righteous, to walk back into relationship with God, that in Romans 3, 27 through 31, Paul lays out the case that the only way we can receive that, the only way we can have that connection with Jesus Christ is through faith. You know, this is laying the grounds for Jack, who next week will go into to Romans chapter 4 with the main example that Paul gives of how the plan has always been by faith in Jesus Christ. And he uses Abraham And then that's setting up the rest of what we're going to see in Romans this summer that Anthony Higgins is going to kick off the week after in Romans 5, which is that we are to see in our faith through justification in Jesus Christ a hope, a great hope. You know, we already alluded to where Paul is going first here. A huge concern that everyone has to wonder when you're hearing the argument that Paul is making in chapter 2 is, is this question of if special revelation doesn't do everything that I need, if just knowing the goodness of God, the, the things that he doesn't like, if that's not going to save me, then is there anything good about having special revelation, about hearing about the wonders of God? And that's where he starts here in Romans 3.1. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You know, Paul does not want us to hear that special revelation is useless, that it's not helpful to us. You know, through God's word, through his law, we see his steadfast love over generations. We see his good plans, how much he loves us, how good and right he is. You know, Paul seems to be anticipating sort of the, the teenagery, snarky attitude from some people being like, oh, so there's nothing good then about having the word of God? And he's saying, no. There's much good. In fact, when we get to Romans 9 and Paul talks about the Jews in general, he says this. He says, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Being Jewish had amazing ramifications, both historically and salvific historically. It's helpful to remember here that Paul is not trying to have a discussion about the covenantal people of God and how that works out with the promises that he's given them both through the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is trying to deal with the question of how are we all saved? The central question that all people should be asking, how can God call us righteous? How can he bring us back into relationship with himself when we aren't righteous, when we aren't Good. And in this regard, there is no distinction between Israel and the roles that they were playing and us and the roles that we play. All Gentiles of all times, all are saved in the same way. And similarly, we don't want to act like there aren't benefits just to being a part of the people of God. 
people attending a church service on a Sunday morning, hearing good things about God, are being awakened to specific things. It's pointing them in the right direction, regardless of whether or not they have accepted Jesus Christ. To be a child raised in a Christian home is a blessing in that you get to hear things about God that you might not have heard anywhere else. Yet salvation only comes to all in only one way, through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, for Paul, this, this, this continued realization that special revelation in and of itself doesn't save people begs two more questions that he deals with here. First, what are we to make of unfaithful people then? If people are unfaithful who God has shared his word with, does that make him unfaithful? Is that a problem for him? In Romans 3, uh, in, in this, this next section up to chapter, uh, verse 8, Paul says an emphatic no. In fact, that's been his whole argument. Knowing what God has done, just his good requirements and his wrong requirements does not save us in those. And even in the Old Testament, people took notice of that. In fact, we're meant to see that here when Paul quotes from David in Psalm 51. This is David right after he's had Uriah killed, right after he's taken Bathsheba to be his own. She's pregnant. And here's what David says to God in Psalm 51. I'm going to show you the larger section that includes our piece. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And David did not see his sinning as God's fault. He did not view that, that it was God's problem that he had told him that adultery was wrong, that murder was wrong, and yet he had still done it. In fact, David is looking to his own heart. He's looking to his own being. In fact, he's saying, I was even conceived in sin. That's part of my problem. My whole life is filled with sin. And yet look what David says is the solution from the same psalm, Psalm 51, a little later on. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I mean, David is looking to God alone to solve this. He knows that no amount of bulls, no amount of rams is going to suffice to deal with the problem that he has. He sees both how wicked he is and how often it's going to be. And he's saying to God, I know all you want from me is a broken heart, a contrite heart. We might even say here, faith, faith and trust that God alone would solve his problem. He wants God to deliver him. This was always the plan for God and God's people. And people, even in the Old Testament, realize that. I mean, let's be honest for a minute. This concern is really a concern that all of us struggle with, I think, in quite big degrees sometimes. This idea that, that people who've been given the good word of God might actually not do what he's called them to do. On the one hand, when we think about it, we realize that we're sinners, they're sinners, we're going to fail each other. We're going to hurt one another. And that's never an indictment against God. It's in fact a justification of God. It shows that God's the only good and right one. He's the one who has to solve the problem for us. That God is always good and our sinning only proves how good he is to save us. Yet, I know how many of you have been hurt by friends and family 
by people who, who would have stood close to Christianity. And whether they were Christians or not, I could never know. But in being in that place has made it hard to trust that God is still good. And can you believe with Paul, with David, with the Old Testament saints, with Jesus, that this is not an indictment of God? That their sin only proves how good and right God is, how good God has to be to save, and that they need to come face to face with the inability of their own works and the fact that their own sin condemns them, that they might be saved through faith as well. You know, if this is one side of the problem is that, that we, don't, we, we want to indict God on this side, Paul realizes there's another ditch on the other side over here, that, that we can accept this idea that we are going to fail and kind of just let it be. You know, many Christians have done this, much like what Paul's arguing that the Jews shouldn't do here. He's saying that they, the Jews, and then even us Christians, that we often believe that we will sin. And so, you know, we don't need to worry too much about that. God's already dealt with it. That's not a big deal. Let's just not worry. Why not allow it if God is going to get glory anyway? We might sometimes reason. This is what Paul says. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is right. Now, Paul says that it's, it's going to be just that they will be condemned if they speak that way, if they continue to act in sin and to not look to God in faith in Jesus. You know, God's righteousness is displayed in both saving us in Jesus Christ, but also condemning us in Jesus Christ because he did all the work. You know, Paul's reminding the Jews here of something that they all believed. They were looking forward to a God who would righteously judge those who did not follow him. It is also reminding them that by the same rules, they are the ones who are going to continue to be condemned, especially if they continue to sin, if they don't care about what God has said. You know, Paul is saying that you are not and those who continue in sin without faith in the hope of God, both Jews in the Old Testament, now people, as we see the good news of God in Jesus, that we will all rightly be condemned. You know, there, there was no other plan of salvation for the Jews of the Old Testament. There was no other plan of salvation for the Jews of Paul Day. There's no other plan of salvation for Jews today. There was no other plan of salvation for Gentiles. God's plan of salvation was always centered around what he alone could do. He knew that from before creation, and amazingly, he still chose to make all of us, knowing the cost that that would come for himself. And he did it that we might see how glorious he is and how good he is. You know, part of the problem with our continuing in sin is that we aren't caring about the glory of God. Every time we continue in sin, we are robbing God from the glory that we are meant to image, the ways that we're rightly meant to point others to how wonderful and beautiful he is. It's part of why we fight our sin. And we forget that God is working to do this, to, to get glory. You know, even in salvation, he's the only being that can do that, that can pursue his own glory without being narcissistic. Because he alone is perfectly good. He is what defines good. He's not measuring to this ruler called good. He is what he is, and that's how we define good. That is how we define beauty. That is how we define righteousness. He alone is that. And I think that becomes a problem for me and you that we don't realize that our sin is robbing glory from God. This is how one scholar says it. He says, the problem Paul attacks in these verses is not confined to the people of God in his day. All too often, we Christians have presumed that God's grace to us exempts us from any concern about our sin. 
Too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory and not our blessing. We get a blessing as we're found in God, in Jesus Christ. But God is most concerned that he would be seen as glorious and good. Every time we sin, it it hides God's glory. It makes something else primary in our lives, as Paul talked about in Romans 1. We cannot ignore God's righteous requirements and character even when we are saved, whether you're Jews or Gentiles. Our sin is always wrong. And God asks us to do hard things to fight it. God asks us to grow. He asks us to fight against sin, to come alongside the Holy Spirit working in with us. And as we saw in James, God might even allow suffering that we might be purified, that we might treasure more what he treasures. Do you believe this morning, Christian, that your sin still matters? That yes, it's been dealt with on the cross in Jesus Christ, but every time we sin, we continue to rob glory from God? That he's not seen as beautiful through his image bearers in the ways that he should be? That should lead us back to Jesus again and again, looking to him to deal with the problem that we have. You know, in Romans 3, 9 through 18 and 19 through 20, Paul is summarizing everything that he has said from Romans 1, 18 up to this point. First of all, he's reminding us we are all under sin. He goes on this great moment of quoting verses again and again from the Old Testament. Just listen to what he says. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." That may not all be true of you at all times, but it is definitely true of you at some times. It's true of me. And second, Paul says again what the law, what the knowledge of God's holy requirements and what sin looks like does and doesn't do. He reminds us again that the law doesn't save lives, rather that the law stops lips. Here's what he says in Romans three nineteen through 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The imagery here is of a courtroom, of standing before a judge. And I don't know about you, but my tendency usually would be, but your honor, I was, I was trying to get to work quick. I was worried I was going to lose my job. Can't we just let this one slide? We want to justify ourselves. But the imagery here of lips being stopped is a legal description of a defendant who no longer has anything they can say. The evidence is so big. They start trucking it in on all the little carts and it begins to fill the room up from floor to ceiling only to find out it goes out the door and it fills vans and vans and buildings and buildings. There's nothing you can say to it. The evidence against us the evidence of our sin under the law, what it declares to us is that our lips stop. Nothing more we can say. The evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is true. The evidence is literally damning. It's a darker moment than any cave, any moment that we've ever experienced. And Paul goes here. But now, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But now, the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about that phrase, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than just these two words. But now. Here we should be feeling the weight of Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, the beginnings of chapter 3, realizing how dark the cave is that we are in, feeling the desire of knowing that God has to do something or else we will perish. Paul says here, the, the law and the prophets have been pointing to this beautiful thing, but there is something better. And this section of scripture could be months, years of sermons alone right here in Romans 3. But now is not just a shift in the argument, but it's a shift in reality is what Paul is saying. But now, before where people could only hope, marvel, uh, trust that God was going to do something amazing for us in himself, but now they could finally see. They could see how he did it. Reality had changed. It was no longer a future hope, but God showed what he was going to do, showed how he did it in himself, the very God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is the exception, as it were, to special revelation. He is the special revelation that we have to have. Without him, all the rest of special revelation does not mean the same things to us as it does through him. You know, Romans 3, 23 through 24 is where Paul turns the tide of the whole book of Romans from realizing how problematic our situation is to how glorious it now can be in Jesus Christ, right? He starts with Romans 3, 23 here, this one sentence, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's summing up the really, really, really bad news that he's been laying out through many chapters. And then directly in the next verse, he says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right here, he lays out for us the amazing, unbelievable, undeserved, exemplary, beneficial, gracious, merciful, superb, satisfying, marvelous, exceptional, life-defining, pick all the superlatives you could ever find, good news. In the dark backdrop of our sin and our predicament before our righteous God, there is such sweet mercy and grace. We are back in the courtroom again. And in the pile of that evidence, all you can say is, I have faith in you, my God alone, to solve this for me. And in Jesus Christ, as we put our faith in him, our God looks at us and declares as the judge, you are righteous in Jesus Christ. Done. Evidence dealt with. This is the scene unfolding before me and you. Paul is telling us this future reality in that courtroom can be assured and set today. That declaration happens now in our faith 
in Jesus Christ. This section is so deep, so many things to say because so much is happening in Jesus Christ. You know, another image here in Romans 3 is that of Jesus Christ being our propitiation. You know, it's a big word. It's often really hard to describe. In general literature of Paul's day, it meant not having an impediment to go before the gods. But you know, we are lucky because our God gave us an image of what he means here. You know, in Israel's calendar, they had the Day of Atonement. It was this this special day where the high priest would purify themselves. Uh, They they would put on a white robe to symbolize repentance before God. Uh, He he would make a sin offering for himself and the other priests by sacrificing a young bull and a ram. He would enter the Holy of Holies with incense filling the air. He would use his fingers to dip them in the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, underneath the wings of the cherubim on top of it, the place that symbolized the very throne of God. He was looking for God to give atonement, for God to show mercy. In Paul's day, that place on the Ark of Covenant was called the seat of propitiation. That's, that's the image we're meant to hear when we see that. It's this whole package of everything that Jesus is fulfilling that Israel was hoping for, that a holy God was no longer behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies, that he could relate to them again, that they could all relate with him, that this constant sacrifice and rivers of blood streaming from the temple grounds could cease and that they could no longer need to bring sacrifices daily. This is the righteousness of God. And we can see the breadth and the scope of the righteousness of God as we look at Romans 3. In verses 21 through 22, we can see how it's God's righteous actions have been done for us in Jesus Christ. We can see in verses 25 through 26 that it's his righteous character has been demonstrated and affirmed in Jesus Christ. It's all about this idea of the righteousness of God. And even more so in this section, we see more of that idea of righteousness, the the justice word group. It's the same word, just used different ways. I mean, it says right here in Romans 3 that God is shown as just. Just means that the righteous God acted righteously to all people, those he condemns in sin and those he saves in Jesus Christ. God is showing how it could possibly be true that any people who weren't righteous before him could be brought back into right relationship with him. We also see that God is said to be the justifier, meaning that the righteous God is making his people righteous through the righteous act in Jesus Christ. Do you see all this this language of righteousness flowing out? It's like a bomb of righteousness going off in all directions from the cross in Jesus Christ. Paul says that we are justified. I mean, that comes from justification, the idea of the moment that the righteousness of God declares those who have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as being righteous in him. That's what we just said is true today. We see that that we are said to be justified, meaning that we've been declared righteous by the righteous God through faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that God was justified, having been shown as having a character of righteousness in his plan to make us righteous in Jesus Christ while dealing with our sin. Note how this is all about righteousness. And it starts and is centered on the righteousness of God, which he gives to us in Jesus Christ. God is just. He is acting righteously by being our justifier, the one making us right in Jesus Christ through faith. He gives us justification, a declaration of being right. And in doing so, he justifies us. We are now today declared righteous in Jesus. 
and he justifies himself, showing how he has acted righteous through his plan in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. Righteousness everywhere, in and through God, through Jesus Christ, in faith, given to me and you. And there's still more in this passage. You can see why you could spend months here. He says that this is a gift. It's not something that we've ever earned, nothing that we could do to get it from him. And it was given in grace, God's favorable demeanor. He smiled on me and you as he did this. It was not begrudging. He wanted to do it for you. He wanted to do it for me. Those are incredibly deep thoughts. I've told several people that Romans 3 is the one chapter that makes me feel especially sad that we're going so fast. Yet this is meant to make you long for what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, to plumb those depths more and more yourself and to, to marvel, to marvel that all that righteous declaration of God through God in Jesus Christ came with grace came with his favorable smile on you. I love this quote. Grace is indeed needed to turn a man or a woman into a saint. And he who doubts it does not know what a saint or a man is. We think very little of ourselves and very, very much of ourselves and very little of what God has to do if we don't realize it will only come by him smiling upon us and doing what we could never do in Jesus Christ. Praise God that now today, as Paul would say, but now that we know exactly how that has happened in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul has, has illuminated our dark reality in this section like a, with a sun-like brightness. The cave is no longer a scary place because there is a beacon of light that promises life, not death, joy, not sorrow, hope, not condemnation. Having exploded the good news of Jesus Christ in light of our sad predicament of sin, Paul makes sure that we know that there's only one way to connect to that. There's only one way to have what Jesus offers. And he says that it's through faith. He says this in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified, made righteous, by faith, apart from the works of the law. You know, the declaration of righteousness was only ever going to come by faith. And it was only ever going to come by what God himself did. Now, Paul uses these almost exact same phrases in chapter 4 as he talks about Abraham. So I'm going to let Jack unpack most of that next week. But this week, I pray you're having one of two reactions. If you're a Christian, I pray that it is marveling you again what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Uh, Mind-blowing, grace-filled mercy uh, 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 flowing actions of God for me and you in Jesus Christ, that you, that I might be count righteous, right before God, brought back in relationship. Do you know yourself? Do you know me? That shouldn't be able to be true. That shouldn't be able to be true. And yet it is by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that's what you're marveling at if you are a believer this morning, that the gospel is refreshing your soul anew to, to, to joy and love in Jesus Christ for our God. If you're here this morning and you don't yet have faith like this in Jesus, I pray that you are seeing your predicament as dark as it really is, and you are seeing the solution as bright and glorious as it really is in Jesus Christ.
seeing how much God has loved you and that he has smiled upon you, that he wants you to come to him as a beloved son or daughter, would you do that even this morning? Would you turn and put your faith in him knowing that he alone can solve what you keep trying to do and keep failing at? And that's what I pray that we celebrate this morning as believers as we come to communion. I pray that we come to it reminded of the immensity. These are very little cups, very little pieces of bread, and yet they signify an amazing, glorious reality. I pray that's what you think about in the contradiction of these small elements is the totality of the goodness and graciousness of God this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this reality, this but now moment that we live on this side of that. Lord God, how, how much less of an excuse do we all have today because of the side of, of salvation that we live in? We know what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We can see through your word the beauty and the glory that you have demonstrated in making those who were not righteous righteous in the one who bore sin for us. Lord God, would we relish in that today? Would we, would we bask in the glory of the sun, of uh, the brightness of your righteousness that Paul is pointing us to continually? Lord God, thank you that you would love us, that you would smile upon us in grace. Lord God, would you help us to treasure Jesus even more today? It's in his name I pray, amen.